Hello, this is Brad Schwartz, professor and chairman of Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the latest release in our podcast series. Each month, we will be presenting a current events topic of interest to our listeners. This broadcast, I'm happy to introduce Drs. Kay Thomas and Matt Bultitude. Both are consultant urologic surgeons at the Guys in St. Thomas Hospital, London, England. They are leading figures in stone disease, specifically cystinuria. Today, we'll be discussing what is new in cystinuria, how we might treat it, and how they are managing one of the most sophisticated comprehensive stone centers for this disease. Uh, I want to welcome you both. Uh, how are you doing across the pond? I understand it's a little cold over there. Yeah, we're very good, thank you. There's a tiny bit of snow, which uh, is, is very problematic in London. We're not used to it. Well, I hope you uh, weather the storm literally, and I, I hope uh, you come out of it okay. So as I mentioned, um, uh, this is a little unique. We have two two people on the uh, podcast, which I, I'm, I'm excited about. I think we'll add uh, another dimension. You guys have one of the most, uh, arguably one of the most advanced cystinuria clinics and stone centers in the world. I was wondering if you could just tell the audience the makeup, how the patients come in, how you give a, a comprehensive treatment to them, and uh, re really what is the patient experience as they kind of meander about your clinic? Thank you very much for those kind words. We've been doing the clinic now since 2008, and obviously we've modified it over the years, but I think the ethos has stayed the same, which was to try and provide as comprehensive a service in as short a time as possible for the patient. So the initial reason that the clinic was set up was because our patients were dispersed amongst many other nephrologists at the time, and not really uh, getting tailored care to their needs, coming backwards and forwards for investigations, long delays, having operations and clinic appointments, and labelled often as difficult, non-compliant, sort of nightmare patients. Um, and so we offered uh, a comprehensive service, multidisciplinary, with our nephrology colleagues, um, but also with uh, same day scanning, so a uroradiologist providing the scanning uh, in the clinic, so they weren't having to come back for that, blood tests on the same day, CT on the same day. And what was unique at the time and much debated when we've presented this over the years was a dietitian in the clinic who would review the patients and has actually been one of the most popular aspects, um, probably because it is quite unique to our clinic. We also offer comprehensive investigations in terms of urine testing for the biochemical features, um, but also looking at crystal urea, which we've published on before, and various research projects over the years, including genetic testing, which is not needed for the diagnosis, but is something we've been exploring in terms of potential modification in the future or drugs that may be suitable for patients with certain genotypes. Do the cystinurics, do they kind of come through a different door or is, is everything all managed at the same time? And, and how are they treated differently? Do they get different lab tests, different x-rays? Are there certain different expectations for them? 
Thanks for inviting me as well uh, to this. So, I mean, we run it in our urology centre at Guys, but we have a dedicated cyst and clinic, so it is only cyst and patients uh, that are seen in that. And that, um, as um, Kay has uh, described, the idea is to run it almost like a one-stop clinic where they get everything in there to, to get away from the fragmented care that the patients have offered experience with separate ultrasound, separate nephrology, separate urology. They can do the blood tests, urine tests, for uh, cytology and crystals all at the same time as well as having an ultrasound by our radiologist. So let's just kind of jump right in then. What are the medical therapies that are, you currently employ? Let's say first-time cystinurics and then maybe the recalcitrant cystinurics or the recurrent stone formers while on first-line therapy. I suppose first thing to say is we've got you've got to make sure you get the basics right first. And so lifestyle, diet and fluid is really important as almost like the first level of treatment. And that's often how we describe it to the patients. If you've got to get, you've got to tick that number one box of doing everything you can to encourage patients to look after themselves, to try and achieve a normal weight, to try and uh, ensure a healthy uh, diet. And also clearly make sure they're drinking it, uh, enough uh, fluids. And that's why having a dietitian in clinic as well is of course uh, really important to help. Uh, with all of that. So assuming that's done, then the second level of treatment is with alkalization of the urine, and clearly a lot of patients will need that. We do urine pH in the clinic, so we have a spot pH in the clinic when they come, but we also ask them to do a pH diary in advance, so you get a better range of uh, idea of a range of pH readings at different times of the day, to then really be able to tailor their needs for alkalization. And you're really aiming for a target pH in the region of 7.5 to 8 on a consistent basis. And of course, many patients will need to take that three times a day to achieve that, but other patients may only need to take single or twice daily dosing, depending on the points at which their urine pH tends to dip. And I mean, fairly standard really, but from uh, in terms of the medications we use, the preference is for potassium citrate in some, some form or other, and that will depend on availability. Um, in the UK, traditionally, it's only really been the liquid that's been available, and that can be quite difficult for patients. Uh, but there is an effervescent form that is uh, now available to prescribe, and the tablet form is actually much harder to get, but clearly that will be different in different parts of the world. And for patients who can't tolerate potassium citrate, then obviously sodium bicarbonate is used. And then I think we've got to wait and see how patients are going and if they're forming more stones. But as you say, those, those patients that, that need more, we then offer a, a chelating agent. And that would be either tiapronin or D-penicillamine. And to us, the choice really depends on availability of those. And both can be difficult. And that will also vary country by country. In the UK, tiapronin is not licensed um, so it's not in our in our British national formulary, which does make getting hold of it can be quite difficult. It does mean it has to be prescribed through our clinic rather than by primary healthcare health uh, physicians. There's also been significant price fluctuations, as I suspect many of your listeners uh, will know, particularly with uh, tiapronin. So we we use tiapronin or penicillamine depending on availability, and then titrate that dose as required to try and limit stone episodes. A couple of follow-up questions to that. Do you try to differentiate the homozygous and the heterozygous patients? And do you treat the heterozygous as aggressively? Or do you really just look at 24-hour urine cysteine figures and uh, just really treat, you just treat the pH and their cysteine volume? Yeah, it's a really good question. We do know whether our patients are, well, we know their genetic makeup. As I say, we've 
largely used that as a research tool. We haven't been able to find differences in phenotype based reliably on the genotype, although that's ongoing work. We have about 220 patients that have been through our clinic now. So we've got a big cohort that we've been studying and we've done some family studies as well to look at that. But we we haven't got a robust way of stratifying them in that way. And we do use 24-hour urinary cysteine. But again, even that is not a scientifically reproducible way of looking at it. You can't get a, a threshold above which you know exactly what treatment to give patients. So it still is a bit of an art knowing how much medication to give. And we use other factors such as um, pH requirement versus collating versus stone formation and other factors, other diseases that patients may have. And in particular, their levels of renal impairment, which in this population are much higher than I think we realised in the past. We were always quite positive with patients about the impact on their renal function because end-stage renal failure is fortunately very rare. And I think chronic kidney disease is quite common and we're recognising this and and so have other um, groups internationally. And it's up to two-thirds or three-quarters of our patients that have some form of renal impairment. And that, again, needs to be factored in when you're deciding what medication to give. Just following up on the medication, just one last question in that category. You did mention sodium bicarb. I think the world is aware of sodium and its potential impact on increasing you know, calcium excretion and calcium phosphate stone precipitation, et cetera. You know, there's been a, a lot of literature lately just adding a couple very small amounts, a couple teaspoons a day of baking soda to one's diet that might help in alkalinizing. Have you, uh, have you drank the Kool-Aid on this uh, or you're still trying to limit the amount of sodium uh, that the patients get? Yeah, I think most of our patients get potassium citrate, to be honest with you. So, because then we avoid that, avoid that problem, don't we? Um, Christina Penniston actually, funnily enough, visited our unit um, earlier on in the year and she did talk about dietary modifications. And she said she often uses um, baking soda. So, I have tried that in a few patients. It's, of course, slightly less scientific in terms of, yeah, just take some baking soda. How much? Well, I'm not sure. Maybe a teaspoon, maybe two or three times a day. Just titrate it with your pH and test, test it and see. So, I think that is something that I have tried with patients but i think as i say preferentially it's with potassium citrate and then you then you avoid that problem i was just going to make one other point about testing the, the urinary testing levels of cysteine of course we, we we can test cysteine levels here there are other tests available in the states in particular such as cysteine capacity and things and we we don't have that and cysteine supersaturation those may be interesting tests as well that if people have access to them may help guide treatment um, and that's because of the theory that of course if a, cysteine, if a cysteine stone is crystallizing out and forming big stones, then you might actually have relatively little cysteine to measure in the urine, but that's because it's all in big stone form. So that tries to correct for that and look at that. So there are there are different things available. Uh, that, that's not available in the UK, so we don't use that. And one final medicine. So should we just put the issue of the ACE inhibitor captopril to rest? Should it never enter our mind or discussion for these patients? I think so. I mean, there are patients that have been on it for many years, maybe as an antihypertensive. It does have a, at best, a very mild effect in cystinuria, but really for the amount that we would need, you would have to give an almost toxic dose of it. So I think as an adjunct, possibly if if patients have been on absolutely everything else, but we wouldn't really start patients on captopril. And in terms of blood pressure control, 
which again is is higher than I think we previously recognised. Um, in this patient group, we would use the more modern ACE inhibitors. We wouldn't start somebody on Captopril because it's not the optimum for their antihypertensive treatment. Yeah, and guide, there are some guidelines now on cystinuria, and they they recommend against using Captopril. So there is clear evidence there for people to use in their in their day to day practice. Perfect. Okay. So you guys mentioned uh, the dietary modifications. I always teach my patients the old adage of, you know, when you wake up at two in the morning to go pee because you have to, you know, you have a full bladder, you should probably drink another eight ounce glass of water before you go back to sleep. You recommend four liters of water uh, or excuse me, four liters of fluid a day. Uh, you recommend low salt diet. You recommend just kind of a standard low protein, kind of the, the normal heart healthy doctor diet, if you will. Is that what is recommended? Is that what you mean by dietary modifications typically? Yeah, so it's different in different patients. Certainly fluids are very important. And despite some of our patients coming to us after many years of stones, they still have poor fluid intake. And um, that's why the dietitian is helpful to see what their, what their occupation is, for example, but also to give them hints about how to include fluid through foods that they have, not just having to drink water all the time. And then the other dietary modifications are, as you've said, looking at salt, for the reasons we've discussed already, um, decreasing animal protein, which has the benefit of reducing the, the load of cysteine, but also in general, they're encouraged to replace that with vegetables uh, and non-animal protein. And that means that they also naturally increase the pH of the urine. And for some of our patients, they've done that such that they don't have to be on potassium citrate anymore. So the other thing we do do is continue measuring their pH, not all the time, but from time to time, if they have made significant dietary changes, because we have been able to stop alkalinization in some of our patients. The other thing we look at, of course, is their weight. Uh, and unfortunately here, and I'm, I'm sure in, in many countries now, we have a problem with obesity and a third of our patients are obese that comes to the clinic uh, and it's helpful for their stone formation, but also if they're having to undergo surgery for them not to be obese. And so again, the, the information is tailored towards the individual and it's been successful. About two thirds of our patients have successfully made dietary modifications. Some of them have really noticed a difference in their stone formation. So anecdotally uh, noticed that. And so we have continued to provide this service and it's one of the aspects that patients are particularly keen on. It gives them some element of control with no side effects, which is important, obviously, for a lifelong disease. Again, you mentioned a lot of patient factors. I think a lot of physicians face the problem of health literacy, kind of a patient investment in their own disease, especially when this disease affects young people. The invincibility of some of these young people would question their compliance and their abilities to really deal with the disease. I think you guys have made a number of efforts to improve patient engagement and understanding of their disease. What types of uh, initiatives have you done to help in this area? Yeah, so I would say this has been a key area that we've tried to target. And by having all these patients grouped in one clinic, that does sort of allow you to try and do that and study that maybe a bit, a bit more. Um, so when we first set up the clinic, um, one of the comments that a lot of patients gave was that they couldn't find reliable information on the internet. And what they read was often quite bad and scary. 
And so they almost challenged us to go away and improve that. And uh, we set up our website now. I think it's 12, just over 12 years old, um, sisterneurouk.co.uk. Uh, you may have seen it, um, which we actually uh, got some patients involved with. So structured it based on what they thought was important questions for them. So really orientated towards the patient. Um, uh, had our dietitian write some stuff on, on that to try to, to advise on that. And so the other thing that our patients asked us about was setting up a forum and why can't, why can't we do that? And as I was like, well, we're two clinicians trying to run a busy clinic, not IT specialists, but actually we've been able to do that now as well. And we use the platform called Health Unlocked, which you may have heard of. It's a bit like Facebook for health. Um, and actually made this very easy to set up. And we um, set up a forum called Sister Neuro Support, which our patients have found help, helpful. There have been quite some quite interesting chats on that. And they tend to moderate that themselves. So they're sort of almost teaching themselves and helping themselves, uh, which would, I suppose, be a key message of ours is helping each other and helping helping themselves. And the Sister Neuro Foundation have a similar Facebook page as well that is, I think is much bigger that um, is widely uh, used as well. And then uh, we've run a number of patient information days. Um, so I think we've run five now in total in the UK. Uh, we had plans for sixth in 2020, and that was stopped because of COVID. Unfortunately, we haven't yet managed to run that with concerns about bringing a group of vulnerable patients all together in the same room at the same time. But I think hopefully we'll look to try and have another one of those next year. And that's really a day when we try to uh, invite sister neuro patients from around the country to come and meet other sister neuro patients. And, and what you realize when you talk to assistant uh, Europe patients is that often they've never met another patient because it's so rare. And in most hospitals, they may only have one or maybe two assistant Europe patients. Our clinic is, of course, different because they sit in the same group when they come up. But actually, for a lot of assistant Europe patients, they haven't done that. So just even getting them in the same room has been has been a positive thing. And then just having some interesting lectures, so inviting nephrologists, invite dietitians, invite researchers to come along. So they actually want to hear what's being done. What, what is that they're out there in the future that might, might help us? Um, and uh, when we last ran it in 2019, we invited David Goldfarber over. It was a real hit, and um, the patients really enjoyed uh, meeting uh, the guru that they've all read about online over over the years. That's been another thing we've been trying to do. We've talked about diet, haven't we? So one of one of the things that uh, we have, have done was uh, to create two cookbooks to try and encourage healthy eating along the lines that uh, Kay has uh, described. So again, that was with help from patients and colleagues and a chef, a local chef. Um, who gave us time to come up with some recipes and they're, they're uh, into recipe books uh, that we give to all our patients when they first come to our clinic. And actually we've made those available online. So those are available via our website as well for uh, sort of the wider system area population uh, to download. And we did have some fun ones. We actually had some cookery classes as well that, um, that we arranged and some of our patients came along to do that. And I had a, had a go at trying to cook in the classroom which wasn't wasn't that successful i think actually most of it matt was just eating what everyone had produced <laughs> rather than you know. that sounds like it could be great or it could be a catastrophe <laughs> i think the question you asked though um is actually a very good one about transition and that's something that we're sort of interested to look at more as well um and that is transitioning because often these patients have quite a smooth time as a, as a child. They're in the, under the services of the pediatric teams with regular appointments and support of mum and dad. And then what happens when they leave home? So typically age 18, go to university, they, they, they drop out of the support of mum and dad because they've moved out of, out of home. Uh, they drop out of the pediatric service and suddenly get referred to, uh, often to a centre that may not be have any specialist interest and suddenly they experience something 
this fragmented care that we've obviously tried to get around it by running our clinic. Um, and I think patients need a lot of support at that time and often do to go downhill a bit until they, and, to, and so what I think we want to try and do is to learn how we try and course correct that and try to, to encourage them that actually it's going to be a bit different going to university. You can still enjoy university, but you may not be able to do exactly what all your other friends are doing, going out, drinking all night, never drinking any water. And actually, how do you look after yourself? And that, that is a big challenge. Sure. Interesting. Uh, and, and kind of on the uh, coattails of that a little bit, what uh, pregnancy offers a little bit of a challenge for these folks? What, what types of changes need to be done in the pregnant population? I think we sort of go back a step, actually, to before they're pregnant, um, because I think with the concern about it being a genetic disease, a lot of the patients, uh, male and female, are worried about passing on to their children. That's one of their first questions, really, in the clinic. And particularly if they've had or they have quite severe disease and they've been in and out of hospital a lot, they're terrified about passing it on to their children. And so, you know, we talk to them about the genetics at whatever level it seems appropriate for that patient. We direct them to the website, which has got detail about the genetics and the inheritance and try and reassure them that for most patients, they're not going to pass it on to their children and therefore they shouldn't be concerned. But there's some tragic stories where some of our patients never had children and um, because they were told that they would pass the disease on and um, because of the severity and they'd had an nephrectomy, they decided they wouldn't start a family. So I think that's the sort of first aspect. And then if patients are pregnant, then clearly they're worried about it. We have to make sure that they know they can't take the collating agents when they're pregnant or when they're breastfeeding. And also that we want them to be seen in the clinic more frequently than we would usually. So that if they do have any stones, we can offer them treatment while the stone is quite small. And we have to reassure them that we're used to doing urethroscopy in pregnant women and that we can do that and that they shouldn't overly worry about that, that shouldn't dominate their pregnancy. That's the patients that come to us, but we also did through the website uh, a questionnaire sort of asking what patients' experience of pregnancy had been and, and how often they had had stones and problems during pregnancy. And 90% were concerned about having children that might have cystinuria and a quarter thought it was a barrier to pregnancy. Only a third actually said they'd had to cease their medications. Our questionnaire wasn't sophisticated enough to sort of ask what medication they'd been on at the time of their pregnancy. But about a third had passed stones and half had had stones that needed treating. So you can see it is quite a significant risk to their disease um, getting pregnant. And that's why we like to see them frequently plan it in advance where possible and reassure them that if they do need treatment, we can do that uh, and that they should maintain close contact with us during the clinic. Okay, very good. That's good insight. Has COVID affected um, how you treat these patients or run your clinics other than what you've referred to already, Matt, with the uh, kind of group discussions or bringing uh, in the immunosuppressed in, et cetera? Has, has COVID really changed or challenged your approach to these patients? Good question. And it's certainly been a challenging time, I think, for these patients um, who were clearly very scared during COVID, uh, very scared that they were clinically extremely vulnerable, that they should be shielding. And what happens if I get COVID? And the shutdown of our clinics meant that we weren't able to necessarily run them um, and certainly not able to run them face to face. And of course, the setup of our clinic, as we've described, really relies on patients coming face to face. That's the idea of having 
multiple specialities there, having ultrasound in clinic, being able to do the urine testing and all of that. So once you become a, just a telephone call, then that, that in terms of surveillance is, is uh, I think you, you lose a lot of that. So, uh, so yes, it has been, has been challenging. And there are patients coming now we haven't seen for two years that we may have had some kind of contact with, but they just haven't wanted to travel. We are based in the centre of London. And if you live, we get referrals from all over the country. Patients don't necessarily want, you know, view London as a hotspot of all of this and don't want to come on packed trains and, and are scared to do so. Um, and certainly, I think when we, I remember when sort of things opened up again in COVID, actually patients are just coming from such a shielded area out in, say, in the country somewhere into London, seeing everyone's going around not wearing masks was, was very almost terrifying for them, actually. So, um, so, yes, I think it has been difficult. I think quite a lot of them did shield and we did. We also tried to look at a bit of data as well from our patients, what they did. And uh, some like two thirds of them um, had to shield during during that first uh, first wave. And of course, a lot of them also worked from home. And that also had some added benefit. And a lot of them had found it easier to drink fluids because they were at home. So they were in a much more familiar environment, obviously close close to a toilet. So actually, a lot of them reported that drinking fluid and keeping hydrated was easier than it had been. So that was one uh, small benefit. Uh, but yeah, patients that had stones, if you'd had stones, be worried about going to the emergency department, worried about coming in for operations uh, with backlogs that are created. That can also, of course, cause challenges in terms of getting these patients in in a timely way. And that's critical, I would say, for, for this group of uh, patients. And the other thing that they reported was difficulty getting hold of their medications. Um, I sort of alluded to that a little bit earlier about the challenges of getting certainly penicillin and tiopronin in this country and actually with difficulty getting GP appointments as well and getting and getting to see us just obtaining your medications became much harder in COVID so I think it's been a whole load of challenges uh, for these patients from from COVID. Interesting comments it's funny you mentioned all you know there are obviously negative effects from COVID but when you look at potential compliance with diet potential uh, compliance with medicine because they're on lockdown, uh, you, you may see an opposite effect. That's, uh, that would actually be an interesting study if you can harness that data and, and, and you know, uh, harness it meaningfully, but it, it's probably jumbled and difficult to, to get pure uh, data points on that. Yeah, so I think we, we asked our patients what they've done, their experience of it. Very subjective, isn't it? But getting objective data on that to prove that somehow that affects stone episodes, I think would probably sure. be impossible. Well, this has been really a, a great discussion. I, we could probably go on for hours. I, I have really just one last question, and it's always kind of what I end up with in most of these uh, uh, discussions I have, and really what's on the horizon? What is new? What can we expect? Is there uh, Are there any meaningful breakthroughs that might be uh, truly practice changing? Uh, we didn't talk about surgery much, but you know, as we know, there, there's only three ways to treat stones for the most part, lithotripsy, ureteroscopy, and perks. And I suspect that that you you do what you have to for these patients to minimize renal damage and and obstructive uh, uropathies, et cetera. But what what's new on the horizon? What can we expect to change over the next five to ten years? Yeah, I think you're right. Surgically, the the main advance has been miniaturization of scopes, but otherwise nothing specific for cystinuria. So in terms of some of the medications, I think that the big change in Europe and internationally has been the concentration now on rare diseases and what that means and the funding of rare diseases. So I think with that slight change in emphasis has come much more interest from industry and there are now 
quite a few medications in the pipeline that may or may not be helpful in the future and trials ongoing. And certainly we get approached by different groups looking to trial certain drugs. There's also been the development of a, a mouse model for cystinuria, which has helped test a cysteine analog, which um, at the moment is not suitable for use in humans, but is quite promising. And that brings together genetics, uh, the mouse model, and also some uh, atomic microscopy technology. So I think in terms of is there anything new immediately? No, other than maybe some changes to preparations of alkalinization that might make them more tolerable uh, and give a better therapeutic dose across the day rather than the peaks and troughs that you get with conventional preparations. There are some new chelating agents that are being tested and some herbals, which cystone uh, is one which has not been shown to make any difference, but alpha-lipoic acid is still under uh, study and research. And so we don't know whether that might offer our patients help. And anecdotally, some of our patients have decided to start taking that without waiting for the, for the results, which is obviously not something we can suggest to them. So there are, there are quite a few things in the pipeline. As always, these things take longer than we would like. But I think it's quite exciting that there's industry interest in this, there's funding, there's rare disease interest generally in the medical sphere. So I think it's quite exciting. We'll have to just wait and see how long some of these take to come to the market. Well, fantastic. I hope uh, you guys can continue your great work and uh, spread your messages around. And uh, it was great uh, discussing this with you both. Uh, I hope you get uh, out of this uh, weather funk that you're in. And uh, we look forward to seeing you at future meetings. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. On behalf of uh, Richard Wolf Medical, the Journal of Endourology and the Endourological Society, I thank you for listening today and hope you can tune into the next podcast.